0: Welcome to This Complex Life, a podcast where we explore the intricacies of wellbeing and relationships. I'm your host, Marie Bakakis, an accredited mental health social worker, family therapist, speaker, and mental health educator. Coming to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri people, join me as we demystify mental health, break down stigma, and navigate life's messiness and complexities one conversation at a time. And just a little reminder, Information in this podcast is for educational purposes only. Anything said should not be taken as a replacement for medical, clinical or other professional advice, diagnosis or treatment. This podcast is not a substitute for professional mental health treatment and advice. If you or someone you know requires support, please contact a mental health professional in your area. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to This Complex Life. Today's episode is part two of a conversation around ADHD. In the episode last week, which you can can have a look at in the show notes, I interviewed Jodie Green about her work as an ADHD coach. And in this episode, she interviews me and talking about some of the differences between coaching and therapy and how I would work with someone presenting with ADHD and some of the differences that that might have to someone who works with a coach I hope you find this conversation helpful. We talk about some of the ways in which we work with mental health and mental illness and general well-being and sometimes the impact that executive functioning difficulties or time blindness or rejection sensitivity can impact relationships. I hope you enjoy my conversation or the reverse interview with Jodie Green. Hello and welcome back to This Complex Life. Today, the roles have been reversed and I am being interviewed by Jody Green. So this is part two of a two-part series, maybe we'll do a third, we don't know, where I spoke with Jody about late-diagnosed ADHD and how she works with folk in terms of ADHD coaching. And then offline, we are having a bit of a chat about, well, what's the difference between coaching and therapy? And so Jody's back to interview me about how I work with ADHD in therapy and i uh, feeling a little nervous. No, Jodie's actually really lovely. Don't get the wrong impression. <laughs> but I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Jodie, sharing the mic. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Marie. I yeah. am also a little nervous. I've never interviewed <laughs> anyone on a podcast before. So
1: <laughs> there you go. Something like I should be like, and we're here today with Marie.
0: <laughs> go for it. Let yes. Your
1: listeners know you. <laughs> Yeah, I really loved following you over the last um, 12 months or so, I have to say, and I really liked your perspectives on just all the nuances around mental health and you have a really kind and compassionate um, vibe is the word I'm going to use in your um, Instagram feeds and all those things. So I'm really curious to chat a bit more today. And like you said, we we covered sort of ADHD and uh, coaching last time. I would love to hear from you a little bit about what you see as the differences so maybe we'll start there so like you're a therapist I don't know exactly what your training and background is and what disciplines you work in so maybe you could start
0: there and then yeah explain a little bit about how you learn. Yeah sure so I my background is I'm an accredited mental health social worker and family therapist and I've done a lot of extra training in working with young people and young adults And then I've trained in extra modalities like EMDR therapy. I do therapy as well. So my I started off even while I was studying at uni or studying psychology, working in the disability sector. So I've seen the change from as a carer and working in houses through to this side of my career now as a therapist. And the roles differ between things like counselling, case management, home help, practical support, and Therapy does sit differently. And one of the things that I encourage people to, or maybe just get them to think about is everyone will do it different. And even mm-hmm. as therapists, like I'll, I'll hear someone say or read something in a Facebook group. Someone's like, I would never do that to a client. And someone else is like, mm-hmm. I do it all the time. And, and most of what we try to do and explain to someone in those first few sessions is this is how I work. What are you looking for? What are your expectations? Does that fit with how I work? So we kind of talk about what it is we do, how we do it, does that work with you, and then after a while we check in and say is this working because some people do intensive therapy, some do single session therapy, some like to do really long-term, really deep personal kind of psychodynamic psychotherapy and other people like to talk about their dreams. So there is no universal sort of way of doing this and it's really important to find a person that fits with you with what you need at that time.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I've been guilty of walking into a session and expecting a the therapy to start straight away. Whereas often that first session can be setting the scene and uh, talking about expectations and getting that sense of whether you're in the right place and if the therapist is the, and it's the right way. And, and I'm sure from the therapist's point of view, you're also like, I'm trying to figure out what does this client want? Is this person, have I got what they need? Would you adjust your working style with someone with ADHD? Because that was the topic of our previous conversation. Do you have a
0: particular way or particular um, differences that you notice? So I, I'm more attuned to it if someone mentions that they've got a diagnosis because then it just helps form a bigger picture. If someone is taking medication, then that's great. I'll support them with that. If they don't feel that that's for them, there's no pressure to 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 do that. I try and help them. And sometimes the thing is, and you might notice this too, when someone is newly diagnosed, they don't know what works because mm-hmm. something has gotten them to the point where they're like, I'm questioning or I'm curious. I want to know about my brain. And then they go and have an assessment. So sometimes it is trial and error. And part of that is actually building a good working relationship where we can say, let's try this. And it's okay for you to tell me if it's not working. And that's where I think the therapy bit is different to maybe coaching because I can see that for some people, they've had hundreds of these moments throughout their childhood, throughout their their adult years of being told off, or they're too much, or they can't sit still, or this, 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 this. So they're very, maybe not even aware that they've suppressed that, they've suppressed those needs. And so some of that is building enough trust in the relationship to help them even recognize that, oh, I'm bored, or This isn't working for me or I leave a session feeling confused or I've forgotten everything. So we do work on that parallel to trial and error. So it can be I write things on the whiteboard. It can be some people like to have a few things emailed to them after a session or sometimes they want a copy of their notes. So we'll draw, do a lot of mind maps and take notes together and then they just take a photo of that. Some like to go for walks, um, fidget toys, beanbags sitting on the floor, it can vary, so it, it is hard for someone who doesn't know what they need to ask for it. So we're yeah. doing that work at the same time as experimenting.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I know that my daughter always asks if so she can sit on the floor every session we of to anywhere. She doesn't like being stuck in a chair. But, but I guess sometimes you might, yeah, like you said, come across people who don't even realise that that's an option or haven't yet learned to ask Those questions, or just, or to know, I can focus, I'll be able to listen better if I do XYZ. Yeah. So part of it is knowing that that diagnosis is part of the picture, I guess. And then you can open up for questions. And I really, I, I suspect you have a very non judgmental, open style. I mean, I know that from working with you in a little bit in the last little while, but I mean, that's a great space, isn't it? Where people feel free to go. Maybe I'm more focused better as though I had a or you know, If we went for a walk, or well, I have forgotten everything from last session. Maybe Richard <laughs> makes some notes this time. Being open to that as as the therapist, I think is amazing.
0: Yeah, and it, it takes it takes a bit of time to get into that groove because I think sometimes I forget that people might be doing this for the first time, yeah. and so it can be a really big reminder every time I meet with someone new who's never done anything that therapy related who maybe only reference is what they see in movies it it's a constant it has to be in the constant forefront of my mind to try and remind myself I need to go through these steps and especially when someone's really hungry to move things along or fix something or you know things aren't happening quick enough, it can be easy to be swept up in that and sometimes that rushes the work and it means some of these foundational bits can be left out so, I have created a a journal, and I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes that people can download from the Therapy Hub website. But we we give people a journal or the option of downloading that to work through some of those things. And one of those questions is, what are some of the barriers or challenges you anticipate? And that might get you thinking: is it 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 might have nothing to do with ADHD? It might just be I don't know if I trust someone. It can be hard to open up. I find fifty minutes really boring, or Mm -hmm. or so. It does help people. A really good inclusive practice is inclusive of a wide range of things. Keeping it, for me, knowing that that person's also got ADHD helps form some, I guess, formulation of why they might be experiencing additional challenges, especially around anxiety, depression, maybe uh, sensitivity to rejection or other interpersonal difficulties. So it's Mm. sort of from that framework that that diagnosis is helpful to help understand could be contributing to some of those other areas that the person might not be completely fulfilled in.
1: Yeah, so I'm assuming that you would do um, therapy with someone for one of those diagnoses, like anxiety or depression. But then there would also be situations where that comes along with other diagnoses. And what do you you notice about coexisting
0: mental health issues and how they Mm -hmm. kind of turn up or what people want to work on? It's often the mood, anxiety or depression that brings people to therapy. And Mm -hmm. it's actually been through that that I've encouraged people to go and get an assessment because especially when we've been able to do a larger piece of work. I know some people feel quite restricted by our Medicare 10 session, which is just a Mm -hmm. a crappy arbitrary number that does not actually help with good outcomes. When we're able to actually look at symptom reduction and get through some of those unhelpful thinking patterns. If we're still noticing other traits, then it gives us a bit of a chance to say, I think this is something else. But in, in 10 sessions or sometimes even in a little, it's really hard to, you know, the first two or three are still getting to know each other, forming an assessment, understanding the, the history, understanding what someone's goals are. And then a few after that, it's still piecing it together. So I've often found people come because they're struggling with anxiety or they're feeling overwhelmed. And then we go back around and think, actually, I wonder if this is. And sometimes it's a bit of a question mark of there's some traits of maybe autism, there's some traits of ADHD, but I also know from your history that there's some trauma. Let's kind of, sometimes I put those on the table and people will tell me, oh, maybe I've actually thought of that before and and here's why. And then we start to unpack it together. So I don't do the assessments. I do some screeners. I do some symptom checklists and then I encourage someone if they want that diagnosis to go and get yeah. it done. But if they self-identify as having some of those traits, we can still look at what the impact of that might be mm. throughout their their experiences, you know, just living and existing with those areas of challenge and what impact that has now. Because it all mm. links to then how they feel about the world around them and the interpersonal stuff.
1: Yeah. Do you feel like you're opening up a bit of a Pandora's box sometimes? So there's like a presenting kind of issue or like the reason the person has come to see you. But then as you start figuring out why that's a challenge, it's kind of opening up all these other cafes. How do you handle that? someone who can see all the pieces
0: falling into place? Or Pandora. She gets a really bad rap, doesn't she?
1: For <laughs> yeah, I don't want her box, Emma.
0: <laughs> For most of the people I work with, There's a relief and then there's grief. So if we put a name to something that they've long felt, "I, I know there's something about me that works differently, or I can't just figure this out the same other people have done, it really helps sort of think, oh, that's why. And then often there's a grief that I wish I knew this earlier. For some people, they'll look at it and think, oh, that could be, but I'm not sure if it's really that helpful right now. And. I'll put that on hold. Sometimes parents can find it really hard because they're like, I just can't have one more thing wrong with my child. And and they they don't mean that in a negative way, but they feel so overwhelmed already with maybe multiple uh, potential diagnoses, whether it's physical health, intellectual disabilities, or other areas that they think, I can't just have one more thing. Like, this is just too much. because. Often those same parents are the ones who want to read the books, who want to do the stuff well, and they're like, this is one more thing I have to learn, and this is exhausting, and it can feel really overwhelming. But overall, people are quite happy to understand how and why their brain does what it does.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I think from a coaching perspective, uh, we do talk to people about that relief and grief, but often they come to coaching like a little bit further down the track. So they've kind of been through that process and then they're, they're sort of like, right, I'm ready now to build some skills or to get some help in this in coaching sense. And I guess in as therapists, you transition to that place as well. So you know, getting through those first couple of stages and then looking at, okay, what to do now? What, How do we help? Where do we build skills or where do we learn how to cope with that?
0: Yeah, and and each therapist, again, works really differently. So because my background was working in disability sector, I have done a lot of extra training. It's a bit, you know, I could dust it off. It's a bit dusty at the back of my yes. brain, but <laughs> things around sensory profiles and really sort of that behaviour activation. So if someone wants that, we can definitely do that. Where I seem to find more and nuanced is what makes that hard? What makes it difficult? And that's often the interpersonal bit. That's often setting boundaries. And that's hard because you don't want to disappoint someone. And that's hard because you felt like you always disappointed someone growing up. I'm scared to do this. Why? Fear of rejection. Where does that come from? So it's not as easy as saying, you just need to tell your friend, I can't do dinner on Saturday because I overest- i underestimate how long tasks are. Blah 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 blah. That sounds like a really good strategy, but when I unpack what makes that difficult, it's often these interpersonal things that are informed by a lifetime of experiences that make those things hard, or they trigger an anxiety or a worry around being left out or, or disconnected or rejected, and and that mm-hmm. seems to be the meaty bit that I like to to get into.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm really hopeful that right our landscape that we're living in at the is going to mean that less people have that experience of being kind of judged or rejected or feeling like they're doing it wrong through their childhood. But I the hope, hope that we're creating a space where uh, there is more understanding and people can yet grow up without that real sense. I mean, that it'll still be there, right? But without that kind of pervasive from and doing everything wrong.
0: Then, Yeah, I think it really depends. I've been running a parenting workshop at the moment or at the time of recording, and there's the flip when people flip too much on the other way of being like, oh, that's okay, you're stressed, you're worried, you're anxious, you don't have to do anything, that's fine. That still doesn't actually help someone build the skills and the tools they need to tolerate that discomfort. So, one of the things that isn't helpful is avoiding everything that's uncomfortable, and that includes the parenting style or the teaching style and going into fixing it straight away or trying to problem solve it straight away, it might reduce in the moment that feeling, but it doesn't help someone identify it, understand it, recognize where it comes from in their body and learn to sit with it and tolerate it. So yeah, it can be really tricky where some parents are like, I don't want to be as as you know dismissive or as harsh as my parents and they flip too far the other way, which also isn't helpful. And it doesn't teach emotional intelligence, emotional regulation. And resilience is not about not feeling sad or feeling crap. It's about falling down and picking yourself back up. And so many people try to just stop their child from falling down physically or metaphorically instead of realizing Mm -hmm. it's the getting back up that's the bit we want, not to just stop them falling.
1: Wow. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. What would be one of your
0: recommendations to parents when they're finding themselves flipping too far so the other way? The first, the biggest thing I say is try not to fix it, especially with well, with anybody really. No, no, most people don't want a solution. They want to feel heard and they want to feel validated. And sometimes parents, the more questions they ask, the more intrusive it feels, especially for young people who are trying to individuate. They're trying to separate themselves from their parents. If you've got a parent saying, Don 't forget about sleep you've got to get good sleep and you've got to have this and you've got to have that and you've got to do twenty minutes of exercise and they're just bombarding them. Yes, that's all probably really good and true, but it doesn't help that relationship so especially when it comes to adolescence it's valuing connection, over correction, mm-hmm. being curious, mm-hmm. and sometimes it is about just zipping it and just saying this <laughs> Yeah, that looks tough. And sometimes, and I, I see parents do this where they're like, they want to know what's wrong because mm-hmm. it eases their anxiety or they want to feel involved or they want to feel connected. But it might not be what the child needs. And it's not just children, Sometimes long as it's our friends or partner. And so it can be really hard to step back and think, I'm asking because I'm curious. I need to know rather than saying, you look worried. Yeah, I had a fight with my friend. Oh, that sucks. It's of saying, what mm. happened? What did they say? Do I need to get involved? Was there bullying? Just saying, <laughs> oh, that sucks. If they want to talk about it, they will. If not, then say, sorry to hear that. It sounds really shit. Yeah. And just, yeah. <laughs> One of the hardest things,
1: right? And I think you, what you just said was really interesting that parents are trying to alleviate their own sort of anxiety or um, anxiousness about what's happening for their child because we do... We're intimately involved in their lives when they're little, but then it's not just the adolescent that has to individualize, it's like the parent that has to allow that to happen too. And I imagine we kids who have had challenges, then you are sort of more intricately involved in like finding the right therapist or finding the current kind of tools and things that you're trying to introduce to your child's life.
0: Yeah. Um, and and it makes it harder. Yeah. And I think that really comes with a lot more feelings of rejection, especially if. There's a sense of you don't need me anymore, but I did this for you and I I rearranged work or I reduced work or I didn't work. I did this, this, this. And then now you don't need me. You prefer to go play with your friends. Do you know how much effort I put into this? And that's, you know, that's that's a parent's, that's their bit to kind of work through. And it can be really hard as I call, you know, there's a phrase we use. I don't know who came up with it or where it came from, but it's moving from manager to consultant. So it really is moving from that role. Often in the primary school years, where they need you to be the manager, they love you in that role. They want you to get stuff done for them, organize play dates, pack lunches, cut off crusts. And then somewhere along sort of pre puberty, tween years, you get fired from that role. It can happen slowly, it can happen like really quickly, you know, unceremoniously, your job is no longer required. And some parents, Crack the shits. They, you know, it's unfair dismissal. I'm going to take you to court. My role is, you know, blah. And they spend years in litigation trying to keep their job. (laughs) Some will storm out and say, well, stuff you. You didn't need it anyway. I didn't need you anyway. You know, dinner's in the microwave. Heat it up. What we want to see is people accept the redundancy (laughs) and and maybe get hired back as the consultant and realise that you're still needed, you're still wanted. The job descriptions change and and fitting into that consultant role is so valuable and so needed and it looks different and if parents can start to understand that that's supposed to happen it's what they need it can help ease that you know normalize that feeling of rejection or you know being not being as needed or or as involved and and that that's something to to think about and if you've got the capacity to talk to friends or family or, or work through in therapy. I think that's a really powerful thing to check in with yourself. I was just going to
1: ask, do you often offer parent sessions when you're working with a young person? Do you sort of offer that adjunct kind of conversation for a parent or is that too close
0: to hire? How do you manage that? If, it, if it's, it depends on how the referral comes. So if somebody comes for full family therapy, then the family relationship is what is seen as the client. For a lot of young people, I don't see anybody whose parents aren't involved to how much. It really depends on what that young person needs and some of the dynamics in the family. So sometimes it is really helpful with the young person's permission to have a solo session with the parent, being really clear about what I can and can't share about what the young person said. But some of it is often in those conversations of, I can see this is really tough for you And if I, because if I can help the parents understand their reactivity and get a little Mm. bit of insight, it then helps shape the conversations they have. And so I won't do full therapy on the parent because they're not my client, but I will have a session or two depending on, on what's needed to sort of give them that space to acknowledge I'm reacting this way because I'm scared. I'm reacting this way because I feel hurt or rejected, or I didn't even know that my response to this actually pushes them further away or isn't as helpful or I'm doing what I wish I needed and I'm finding it really hard to see that they need a different thing. So I do focus a little bit on that. And then if that person requires more therapy, it's best to have someone separate so that that relationship stays with the young person who's originally the client.
1: Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think most parents would value that kind of external perspective to help them see their blind spots because you know we all have blind spots and we all have these areas where we don't realize the impact we're having on people around us so having that kind of reflected back by someone who is trusted and skilled qualified so sometimes the reflections back from your mom or your best friend might not be if as helpful as a reflection back from a therapist yeah really interesting What else do you do around ADHD
0: or helping people understand their diagnosis? Yeah. What else
1: would you like to share with with the listeners?
0: Yeah. So the literature is really great as a reference point to what else might be happening. And then it's also looking at people with the lived experience. So one of the things I'm always kind of keeping in mind is that sometimes there's about a 50% overlap for people who have both ADHD and autism. So Mm -hmm. screening or checking for that as well can be really helpful. And then it's thinking about what are some of the other things that we see an increased risk of. So we see an increased risk of things like binge eating disorder. We see an increased risk of substance misuse. We see an increased risk in maybe gambling or addiction. So having those in mind just helps to know where to focus and what other things to kind of screen for or to look at and knowing what questions to ask. So again, you know, therapy can be really tricky because I can only, work with what I hear and, and, and see in the room. Mm -hmm. So that's a really big part of it is trying to figure out what else could be happening and what that person might be at an increased risk of. And then looking at how that has impacted them growing up and what, what are those sorts of secondary sort of, I guess, sometimes it's even gains and sometimes it's challenges. So someone felt like maybe I'm shit at school and they realize now that, I wasn't I just couldn't sit still for that long Mm -hmm. but that mindset has been really deeply ingrained just like so many I don't know maybe women are told that we you know we're not good at math and you just take that with you into life and and think Mm -hmm. or I'm not I'm not artistic and so sometimes it's challenging those beliefs and asking questions around what was that like and how did that look for you so yeah I guess that's that's the other thing I'll kind of be looking for Mm -hmm. Uh, And then bringing in a partner into the space or, you know, other friends or family members, you know, keeping them in mind and thinking, how does this impact your relationships? And then what can we do with that? So if it's overcommitting and then not finding the right time, we need to recognize that what's the impact of overcommitting. And then it's not trying to cure the ADHD. That's not how I don't even go there. It's what's realistically possible with the way your brain and body works right now.
1: Yeah, that's a really good
0: question. <laughs> I and love separating
1: the bear- executive function aspects of a challenge from the other sort of skills or relationships or environmental stuff and see. Yeah, I think, upgrading something like time blindness or that sort of sense of, yeah, over this around of time blindness. But if you understand that, that that's something that your brain is struggling with, then bear- you can go, okay, what does that really mean? Like, it's not that I'm an unreliable, disrespectful person. It's actually that I have trouble estimating time and I'm not aware of the passage of time as I work through my days. So, I think unpacking that I think is very helpful for that depersonalizing and taking the moral judgment off some of the some of those behaviours.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Because then know, it, it helps. It helps in the in the conflict in relationships to understand that. So. Often we have, you know, when I work with couples, we'll interpret someone's behavior with a certain lens. So if punctuality is really important to me, let's say I'm not throwing my poor partner on the bus because he's very punctual, but let's say he wasn't and mm. he was saying, I'm coming home at you know 6.30. I was like, great, lasagna's in the oven and he's always running late. Now, if I've got that as, that is, if I've got a moral judgment on that and I'm thinking that's rude, that's inconsiderate. I've told him it matters and he's still choosing not to do this, Mm -hmm. then I'm not important and he's rude and then blah, 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 blah. So when we can have those conversations in couples therapy sometimes, then we can say and we can help myth bust that it's, I really struggle with this and it's got nothing to do with you. And then the other person can say, maybe have some empathy and be like, I can see that that's not about me it still hurts me and then they might together come up with a practical solution of if i am running late eat dinner without me or i'll text you if the train's delayed they might then find a a solution to manage that but sometimes we need to take the heat out and look at what the how do we interpret that behavior and then what impact that has on the relationship
1: yeah and i think there's often like a power balance to correct as well um or like the parent-child dynamic that sometimes occurs between neurotypical partners and you know diverse partners where they're saying to me is you know, I have to help you with that because you can't do it properly. <laughs> Actually taking that properly out of the sentence and saying, let's figure this out together. I think is really, really helping.
0: Yeah. And parents really struggle with that because I do think that there is a moral judgment placed on young people. And I don't think it's this is how my I've interpreted. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. I don't think it's based on what they're currently doing. I think it's the fear of where that behavior might lead in the future. So if you're a little bit messy now, does that mean you're going to be an impossible housemate and a difficult partner and you know magnifying that into the future so then parents really get on you have to do this, this and this, and if you've got mm. someone whose executive functioning works differently who maybe even doesn't mind a little bit of clutter. You're going to be in constant conflict. And often when we're in constant conflict, we're not thinking clearly, home doesn't feel comfortable and safe, and we're probably less motivated to do that thing. So sometimes mm-hmm. I'm encouraging parents, like, what's the what's the minimum? And they're like, oh, but they're going to get away with X, Y, Z. Z. I'm like, well, how's your strategy currently working for you? Have they changed that behavior in the last 15 years you've been fighting about it? No. So, what is the minimum? Okay, no food in the bedroom. That might be the minimum. Sheets must be washed at least fortnightly. That might be the minimum. You know, maybe there's a natural consequence. If I don't come and pick up their laundry, then blah blah blah. It's like if you see that's a challenge for your young person, maybe you just accept that. I'm happy to do that, or or you find a different solution. Because if it was a physical mobility issue, you would be having a different response. So. It's really trying to find this balance of that judgment, what you project might be the future consequence versus what actually does need to get done versus mm-hmm. preference.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of shoulds and that sort of you're yeah, projecting forward into the future that does cause the stress with parents. We often remind people that there's like a 3-5 to five year delay with executive function development with kids with ADHD. So, you know, a 12-year-old might be able to clean up their room to this standard. But if they have ADHD, just think maybe what would you expect of an eight year old? So just using that kind of expectation management, I think, is right. the really helpful. Yeah. And like, and decatastrophizing. So just because they can't clean up their brain out, doesn't mean that they're going to be a disastrous partner in the future. Yeah. Stepping out of that. And like you said, just looking at what you're happy to do. Like, are you happy to just actually go pick up their laundry and wash it because you know that it's hard for them? You don't want to create that undue stress on school more easily. But like maybe that is just a helpful thing that you can put aside your own like shoulds or <laughs> Or when I was that age, I was, you know, blah, blah. There's so much, so much unpack, isn't there?
0: Yeah. And I think the last tip on that would be this idea of body doubling. And I think I see this, it, not even with exclusively just for neurodivergent folk, but sometimes parents are really good. And I mean, even couples, partners, everyone's really good at telling someone, you should do this. Mm. You need to study harder. Uh, you need to not be on your phone. And sometimes, what's most helpful is actually saying, "I'll do this with you." I know, yeah. you know, everyone's motivated by different things. I've tried for ages to consistently get into running, and I suck at it. But if I know someone's meeting me there, I yeah. will show up. No matter yeah. what education I get, no matter how much I'm told running's good, no matter how much I know about the cardiovascular benefits, no matter like I get it, I know it. Yeah, I've got definitely. the run. Oh, yeah. But if someone's like, hey, let's do this together. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes it can be finding those ways to make those activities fun and engaging or support is saying, okay, I've seen you really slipping. Your grades are slipping. let us I'll do some work on my laptop or set up the table. You can do some work. Maybe we can gamify it together. Like it's doing things with and teaching someone how to cope because who's to say that that's not going to be the norm in 20 years time? Like how? how do we know what We're, jobs will, will and won't be available? Like someone's like, well, you can't wear headphones in an office. Yeah, you can. Yeah. you know. So there's <laughs> all these strategies that we can start teaching that people are scared to teach. Cause I think it's going to further impact or disable their young person instead of realizing that's helpful now. Yet yeah. if you need it, use it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, in my coaching membership, we do a planning session
1: together. So we literally sit down and everyone does a brain dump. Everyone picks their top priorities for the week ahead. Like it's, but we do it together. And part of the fun is, it's at a certain time, it's at a certain place, there's other people and we talk the trip together. And I think that, that aspect of not just being told, oh, you should do planning and here are the steps, but actually come join me and we we'll can have a quick laugh or a quick chat or whatever else that makes it more fun, makes it more interesting, gives you that little dopamine burst that helps your executive functions come online. Yeah, that's really good. And And what would you like to say as
0: we come to the end? What other tips or anything else
1: that you want to communicate about therapy and any of the other
0: conditions? Yeah, I think when it comes to therapy, it's really important to find someone that you click with. Mm. Really thinking about what are the hopes and what what are you struggling with? Why now can be really helpful. And then starting to think about what you might need to make that successful. And even just sort of saying to someone, I don't know, or this isn't working for me, or could we try something else? Your therapist won't judge you. It, and even if you say, I don't know if this is a good fit, can you recommend someone else? It, they're the one person who, I mean, yeah, you pay for their skills and experience, but their care is, free. for you know, that's that's important. That's what they do. So I think it's, we call it resilient help seeking. It's okay to keep trying to not find the right fit, to, to, to work a bit more and try and find someone and recognizing that it, kind of, it can be like dating where someone might set you up on a blind date, this person's awesome. And you may think like, yeah, nah, not for yeah. me. Therapy can be a bit like that. Someone might like really gentle and calm and and soft and, and that might work. And someone else is like, nope, I need more direction, more instruction. Someone else might love that a room smells like lavender and has, I don't know, diffusers and salt lamps and someone else is like, Excuse me. No, thank you. So mm. it's, it's okay to try and find the right fit for you. And I think that's a good place to start is looking at if that person does have social content, but don't let that dissuade you if they're not, because some therapists are brilliant therapists and suck at technology and hate <laughs> social media. So don't let that be the only thing that you use to inform your decision. But it can be a bit of an indication of what that person's vibe is. Yeah,
1: that's right. And I think if you like find their consulting rooms, or if you can get a recommendation, or even if you can like walk past and just have a look like that, can all they can be
0: free and easy ways to just start to get a feel for somebody. I, pardon me, want to say yes, that's great, but we're on the second story of a, a double story building, and our neighbors <laughs> don't look after the lawn, so please don't judge us. Don't judge. <laughs> I just when you, come out. yeah when you come inside it's really nice but you know it's not my job to to cut the bamboo and it looks quite quite messy so yeah okay well this drink on that way <laughs> pick on, on our website or i do lots of reels of what it's like inside but yeah look yep. it's, it is finding what's right for you if you're a whimsical adult if you like that approach i, I might be great for you someone else who wants in you know, a very diagnostic very medical model they want a prescription not going to be yeah. for me you know Not yeah. going to be a good fit so it really is thinking about that and yeah download the the journal the will be a link to that that helps get some prompts and mm. it, it'll help you get the most out of it I mean it, that's yeah it really does help to kind of think about why now because if you went I mean think about it with a physical health example if you went to a trainer and you just said I want to get fit and they're like what does that mean for you mm. how do you even know which trainer to pick but Sometimes thinking, well, I want to improve mobility. I want to improve strength. Okay, that's that narrows it down. What, what do you like? If you like swimming, that's going to look very different. If you're looking at yoga or Pilates, or if you're recovering from an injury, so sometimes it can be helpful to think a bit more about what you might want. Even if it's just a ruling out what you definitely don't want. If you like get pull, not nah, absolutely not yoga, nut nah, absolutely not any mm-hmm. ball sports. Nope, I'm uncoordinated. So it starts to maybe then limit what your options are I think that can be really helpful because otherwise you'll find the wrong person mm-hmm. if someone's like really hell-bent on I need to have EMDR therapy and they're only searching for that that might not be the best thing for them so yeah so it's really know. it's really yeah. tricky to kind of figure that out and I know people feel like it's a waste of time money if they have a few sessions and then they have to swap but the right person will help you understand some of those things. And you might need to try a few things to get the right fit. Like you might do a 40 day trial at one gym. You might do a couple of sessions with a PT. You might go for a run and think, yeah, no, nah, not for me. But we need to have some dual responsibility to navigate that together.
1: Yeah, and I think that's unavoidable. You know, you have to go and try something out to decide whether you like it or not. But I really like the sound of your journal. It sounds like that's it, a really supportive way for people to... Figure out what they're looking for and what they're interested in or not interested in, and potentially also reflect in those first few sessions about what's working, what's not working. Yeah, um, this that is sounds amazing. <laughs> it
0: looks great. If you haven't checked it out, um, yeah. people go, go download it. It looks good. Yeah, so, for those, oh, this no one can see us. So, I'm just showing mm. Jodie, it's actually getting <laughs> printed in beautiful hard copy to give out to our clients in person and then the downloadables there. So it does have things around self-care activities, session reflections, got a feelings wheel at the back. Another feelings wheel. List of (laughs) strengths. So as much or as little as you want can be a good start because it took me a whole weekend to write this and then several revisions of it and and getting people who've never been to therapy to go through it and, and sort of provide some feedback. So it's a really good starting point. Amazing. I'm going to go download it.
1: Okay. Yes. Awesome. Well, thanks, Maureen. It's been long chatting to you. It's been really fun. I'm excited to have kicked off my first podcast interview online, you know, the bucket list. Oh,
0: you're a natural. It's so, amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll thanks. chat again soon, yeah? Thank you for listening. To keep the conversation going, head on over to Instagram or LinkedIn and follow me. If you'd like to keep updated with episodes and other interesting things happening in mental health, join my weekly This Complex Life newsletter, where I'll share tools, tips, and insight. There's a link in the show notes. Got a question you want answered? Shoot me an email or a DM. I'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoy the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a review. It helps other people find the podcast.